Our scripture today comes from the book of the Acts of the Apostles, the early history of the the first church. Hear now God's word. That very night, the believers sent Paul and Silas off to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. These Jews were more receptive than those in Thessalonica, for they welcomed the message very eagerly and examined the scriptures every day to see whether these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, including not a few Greek women and men of high standing. But when the Jews of Thessalonica learned that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea as well, they came there too to stir up and incite the crowds. Then the believers immediately sent Paul away to the coast, but Silas and Timothy remained behind. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving instructions to have Silas and Timothy join him as soon as possible, they left him. The word of the Lord. We are in this series that we've been doing the last few weeks called Encounter, and the idea, the concept is that I am trying to help you guys understand what it is like and what things you need to do to have a daily encounter with God. Not a daily devotion with God. Not that devotion is a bad thing. Devotion is a good thing. We want devotion from friends. We want devotion from our spouses. But if all we got was devotion and we never had an encounter, an experience of intimacy with those that we love in some way, then it would be a hollow relationship. It would just be them serving us without any real connection. And so this idea of encounter is that we would spend time daily to have that intimate connection with God so that we might be transformed more into his, his image through that encounter. Not just so that we would show our side of it, our devotion, our loyalty, our friendship, but that we might really connect with God in meaningful ways every day. So we've looked at a few different practices. Do you guys remember what they are? The first week we looked at, wow, you all just fell asleep. Man, you guys were on such a good track of like following along with me week to week. The first week we looked at prayer, prayer, prayer. There you go. Good job. There you go. You got it. We looked at prayer and how prayer is kind of the first fundamental part of a relationship with God. It's like the conversation, the give and take. We not only speak in prayer, but we have to learn to listen in prayer, right? To spend times where we spend in quiet and we're actually seeking to hear what God might say through to us through his Holy Spirit. And so it's a two-way conversation, kind of like any friendship you have, right? How many of you have had friendships with no conversations ever happening between you and the friend ever? Good. No one's raising their hand. That means we have good, healthy friendships in here. It takes a conversation for friendships to happen, right? For a relationship to build. And oftentimes marriages begin to break down when communication breaks down in the marriage, right? When some kind of block between the two people in the marriage that keeps them from communicating effectively towards each other, how they feel and what they're going through and building life together, right? So prayer is important. The next week, we looked at what? Meditation. Good job. Yeah. Meditation. 
So the second week we looked at meditation and how we are called to spend time reflecting on God's word in a meditative way and reflecting on God in a meditative way and what he's done for us in a meditative way. And we looked at different traditions of meditation and saw that uh, Christian meditation is not an emptying of yourself, but rather a filling of yourself of God's word, of God's spirit, and of uh, connection with God. And so it's really a focus, an intense focus on something God is trying to teach you and lead you through in any given moment. And we looked at two specific practices. We looked at doing kind of centering meditation with the Jesus prayer, which who remembers the Jesus prayer? Lord God, have mercy, or Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, right? Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And praying that prayer in a way of focusing on the salvation that Jesus offers to us, focusing us on God, on, on his son Jesus, bringing us into that encounter and that relationship so that we're prepared to hear what he's trying to say to us in the meditation. And, and we looked at uh, Lectio Divina, where you take a scripture in pas- a passage of scripture and you read it aloud and you begin to reflect and think on it through multiple readings. Go back, listen to the sermons. I finally got the podcast updated so you can go and listen there or you can go on on YouTube, and you can listen on that. Last week, we looked at fasting, and, and Mike did a great job of talking to us about what fasting is not and what fasting is. Fasting is not a way to lose weight or just a way to uh, empty ourselves of stopping doing something or discipline or anything like that, but no, fasting is a way of desiring after that which is the most important thing, right? Giving up something that's temporally important, food or anything else that we might fast of, and instead choosing to, f- to spend that time seeking the eternal things, is seeking God, probably in prayer and meditation. Do you see how these things are building on each other? Prayer is the cornerstone. You need to start with prayer. Meditation is something that comes out of prayer. Fasting is something that builds on top of prayer and meditation, right? So this week, we are looking at Bible study. Guess what? Bible study is probably the thing that is built on top of those other three. It's the thing that you should be being led to as you pray, meditate, and as you discipline yourself to seek after God first. I noticed, I don't know, about probably 11 or 12 years ago now, a distinct change, maybe even longer than that, 13, dang, I'm getting old, um, there, is, there's, there was a distinct change in the way that my youth groups interacted with my teaching style. Before that, much of, much of what the kids had been through in their education was very similar to my education, which I would guess is very similar to most of your education. After that mark where I noticed the change, the kids began to answer questions differently and interact with me differently in my teaching style. And here's what I noticed. The kids would not know what I was looking for from them, and they would get frustrated because they wanted me to just give them the answer so they could memorize it. But the way I was teaching was trying to help them to think critically about their faith, think critically about the scriptures, and to begin to puzzle through with the critical thinking skills that I was trying to give to them so that they might come up with the conclusions and the answers on their own as they study the word of God. Literally, the point where I actually realized this change was happening, after I sat there asking question after question after question, they were mostly open-ended questions, and I just got blank faces. Now, it was a Sunday morning in Sunday school, so there's a little bit of that that was going on as well. 
but it was more than normal. And all of a sudden, one of the kids just said, Chris, just tell us the answers and we'll remember them. And I realized at that moment that our educational system had made a severe flip. They had gone from teaching critical thinking skills and examining things and studying things on your own through different kinds of tools and methods of study to instead teaching towards the test. And so remembering facts to spit back out on the test so that they could perform well on the test. I think this is a great, in my experience, disservice that we've done to our kids in our educational system because I think God has created us as human beings to be deeply inquisitive. Just look at this building around us. This building around us exists because somebody, right? Who was he? That's right, Alden Dow was curious enough to think about how structures work, how gravity work, how other elements of physics work, right? And build that together into a practical engineering of a building that looks like this. And so Alden Dow was curious as a youth. He began to learn these principles and put them together. And he came up with things that were completely unique to his brain and his creativity and his way of answering the, the problems of building a building. This is the way humanity has existed for a long time. We've done all kinds of things, right? Modern day medicine is built on this same inquisitiveness. All our scientific knowledge is built on this same inquisitiveness. We all have an innate desire to understand how things work and we try to study it to figure it out. And yet in our faith lives, we tend to think that it shouldn't be that much work, right? How many of you have thought about that? That in our faith lives, it should just come to us naturally. No one? Good. I'm really glad no one raised their hands. Really? Seriously? No one was going to raise their hands? Okay, good. I'm really glad. Because I think that God intentionally has designed our faith in a way so that our inquisitiveness would seek after knowledge of him and trusting in him. So that we would study his word that he's handed down through generations so that we would come to know him through our own nature that he built into us in our inquisitiveness, that we would seek to understand and know. And so we are called to study the scriptures. I think by our innate desire and our innate nature, we are called to study the scriptures and to understand who God is and, and how he's revealed himself to us through those. Now, why? Why are we, I think, we're called? First thing is Jesus is an example to us of this. Right? One of the first things we see about Jesus is when he's 13 and he gets lost. Nobody knows where he is. And they find him in the temple. And what are the words that we see there? That he grew in knowledge, wisdom, and stature among men and God. Do you think that that was just happening like this, like just out of nowhere? No. He spent time reading the scriptures and discussing and talking about with the religious leaders of his day, which is what he was doing when his parents found him in the temple. He spent the time studying the word of God. Now, if God himself comes in the flesh and studies the word of God, does that mean that we should study the word of God? Probably, right? He's giving us that example. Not only that, Jesus was steeped in the scriptures, he quoted the Old Testament so much that you don't even realize that most of what he taught was, was bathed in the Psalms and in the prophets. But he quoted so much scripture because he knew the scripture. 
because he studied it his entire life. And so Jesus himself becomes a model, an example of how we as humans are supposed to seek after God by studying his revelation, his word to us. What about early Christian writers? People like Paul. I just finished a series last uh, late winter, early spring on Paul, and it's all online. If you want to go and catch up on that, they're just like five-minute videos that you would watch every single day. But Paul was one of the most preeminent scholars of the scriptures in early Christian writing. He had studied the scriptures his entire life, and he seemed to be on the fast track to being a very well-known scholar of the Word of God in his day and theologian. And yet God got his attention, and God turned him away from the path he was going on, and he made him into a missionary so that he would go and he would open up the scriptures to people who had never, ever even heard of the Hebrew scriptures before. So we see in early Christian writings, not just Paul, but those who came after him, a deep seriousness of studying the word of God and understanding it. And so Paul becomes an example to us of the kind of person we're supposed to be, that we are to study the scriptures. We're supposed to understand what God is trying to tell us through those words. And then our scripture today. Our scripture today is a passage where Paul brings the word of God to a Jewish synagogue in the town of Berea. And the people there hear Paul preach about Jesus and connect Jesus into the prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament. And instead of just believing on blind faith or dismissing it on blind faith, what do the Bereans do? They go and study the scriptures. They go back to the source material. They probably gather their rabbi near them and they start asking questions. Well, what about this that he said? Does this fit in? They began to examine the scrolls. And as they look and see how Paul's preaching is fitting perfectly with what they had believed, many of them come to believe in Jesus as the fulfillment of the Jewish prophecies about the Messiah and the Savior of the whole world. And they believe in Jesus through their study of the Old Testament scriptures. Now, remember, they're not studying the Gospels. They're not studying the letters. They're just studying the Old Testament and then hearing what Paul is preaching. And so we see them not only study the scriptures, but that they get a commendation for having done this. There's like a special little like thumbs up there in the, in the book of Acts where like, it's like, hey, this is the model. This is the example. Study it for yourselves. See how it makes sense. And so the Bereans got together and they searched through the scriptures. And through their studying of the scriptures, they became to know Jesus as the Messiah. So... I wanted to first talk a little bit about our study of the Bible through talking about three obstacles that I think that we all face when we study Scripture, okay? I think it's three obstacles that we often don't think about, that we don't name out loud, and so it's it's easy for us to just kind of get frustrated without understanding what's going on. But I want to talk about these three things so that we can all be aware that these are obstacles to your studying the Scripture. The first thing is language. How many of you are fluent in ancient Hebrew and in Koine Greek? I have to put my, down, my, my hand down because I'm not fluent in either. I've taken much uh, time worth of classes uh, on those two languages. I, I absolutely hated Hebrew. It just does not work the way my brain works. I loved Greek. I ended up taking almost about five years worth of Koine Greek. And so I came to be fairly competent in studying the original scriptures in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, I rely on other scholars who are much smarter than me. But the scriptures were written in largely Hebrew. 
somewhat in Aramaic in a few passages in Daniel specifically, and then the New Testament in a Greek offshoot that was being spoken at the time as like a marketplace Greek language, Koine Greek or fellowship Greek is what they, the word means. And so the scriptures were written in languages that none of you are fluent in, which means automatically when you start to study the scriptures, what is a problem that you encounter? Translation. Right off the bat, translation. The scriptures that you're studying, somebody else has translated for you, which means that they've made decisions that are not your decisions, right? They've made decisions about how to translate this culture and the meaning of these words into your culture and in your language. And if you read it without a critical eye, without understanding that, you could be led to believe things that aren't actually there because the translator made them there rather than them actually being there. So language is a barrier. Let me show you our uh, beginning of our passage today. This is in the NRSV, which is the official translation of the PCUSA and the official translation of our church. It's the translation we use in worship every week. And this is what we read. That very night, the believers sent Paul and Silas off to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue, synagogue. These Jews were more receptive than those in Thessalonica, for they welcomed the message very eagerly and examined the scriptures every day to see whether these things were so. Makes sense, right? Makes total sense. Okay? Understand this, that just 400 years before this text was translated like this, it was translated like this. And many of you who read King James, you're not reading the King James you're reading, guess what? A translated version of the King James. Because if you read the 1611 version of the King James, it has all kinds of misspellings that you would not be able to get around. Let's look at this passage now. And the brethren immediately, spelled wrong, sent away Paul and Silas by night. What's that V doing in there and into? Unto, yes, okay. <laughs> Berea who coming thither, okay, I could kind of parse out what that means, went into the synagogue of the Euus. These were the more noble than those in Thessalonica uh, in that they recued, received, right? The use of V there. The word with all readiness, readinesse, what does that mean? Of mende, mend, what is it, how you, when, Yes, Minda, there you go. See, we need an Englishman here to help us. And search the scriptures daily. That's horribly misspelled. Whether those things were so. Okay, now, 400 years ago, the English is understandable by us, right? But with a little bit of work. There's a little bit of work that needs to be done for us to understand they spelled things differently. They used words that we don't use anymore. They use words and orders that we don't use them anymore. And so there's a significant transformation of the English language that has happened in just the last 400 years. How many of you sometimes hear some of our teenagers speak and think, yeah, there's been some significant translation of the English language in the last 40 years? Yeah, a few of us, <laughs> All right? That happens every single generation, right? Because language is fluid. It always changes. Like it or not, grammar Nazis, the language always changes, okay? Anyways. 
(laughs) The language always changes, always moves a particular direction, and it's the direction of the colloquial use. Whatever the people of the time are using to communicate towards each other is how the language works. Understand this, the Old Testament, the earliest stuff by academic standards today was written around 1000 BCE to about 800 BCE. There's some argument there on how old it is. The newest stuff that was written was around 500 BCE. So you see the problem. The problem is that even as we translate the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, there is 500 years of transformation of the use of that language to happen from the oldest to the newest. This is why I hated Hebrew. <laughs> because you could get, start to get the hang of it as you're studying one passage, then move into the Psalms, and all of a sudden have no idea what in the world it's saying. Is not only is it a different genre, poetry often, but it's also written in a different era. And so the words they're using are drastically different. How they're using them is drastically different. And I began to realize that you would need to have a doctorate in Semitic languages, which means that you would need to be fluent in Ugaritic, Arabic, Aramaic, and Hebrew in order to really understand the entirety of the Old Testament in the Hebrew language. Does that sound very doable by you? No. So we then become reliant on the scholars who have spent the time to study that much, to become those experts and inform the way in which we translate the scriptures. So we're automatically set off by language. Kind of going along with that, our second obstacle is culture. Culture. You guys understand that The culture in which the scriptures were written were pre-enlightenment. Look, this is a picture I got from Googling enlightenment, (laughs) the enlightenment, okay? How much time has changed between the enlightenment and today? How much holds true in enlightenment thinking in today's modern post, actually post-modernistic, post-Christendom way of thinking? Very little, okay? There's some, there's some, Hold over, there's some foundations that are still there, but the Enlightenment even seems like it's a light year away in comparison to the way we think today. And yet the scriptures were written in a very different culture, pre-Enlightenment. And even beyond pre-Enlightenment, it's not even a Western culture. It was written in the midst of a tribalistic, agrarian, sometimes nomadic, Middle Eastern culture. How many of you fit that description? Not many of you. (laughs) Not totally, but kind of, Jenny. You have a head up on some of us on that. Okay, and so it's a drastically different culture. So you're also, once you get the translation and the translation comes to you, you're missing out on a lot of things that are there because you don't understand the culture the same way you understand your culture. And so that's an obstacle, right? In order for you to study the scriptures well and begin to understand them, you have to begin to understand the culture of the people who recorded these things and why and how they recorded them so that it might be passed on. Culture is important. Context is important. Okay, the third thing, fake news. Fake news. So much of what is accepted today in Christian culture 
I'm telling you right now is fake news. Let me just show you this picture. This scene never existed. The scriptures don't say this scene existed. The word that we translate as in and the word that we translate as the barn or there's no room at the inn has nothing to do with a motel and a barn sitting out back made of wood with hay around it. Okay? The word is only ever used in the Gospel of Luke one other place, and that is when Jesus celebrates the Last Supper in the upper room. And so what it actually is saying is that when Joseph and Mary travel to Bethlehem, the place of their heritage, to their family home, there is no more space because all kinds of other relatives that were more prominent than them were already filling the living quarters, the upper room of this first century Palestinian home. And so they were relegated to the lower levels where the animals were kept so that the heat would rise and heat the house at night. So they were down in the lower levels, maybe in a cave and kind of like a cellar underneath the house. It's possible that a cave was a setting. We also tend to put on the nativities, what? Three kings. Not what the scripture says at all. It just says magis, that some magis came to visit, which are like magicians, people who studied the stars. Uh, they, were, they were like the people who write the... Uh, uh, horoscopes in the uh, newspaper today, okay? So just think of horoscope editors coming to Jesus' birth. That's kind of what they were. And they were, they were showing up, and we don't know how many were, they were. We assume three only because there was three gifts given. In fact, we tend to think of these things happening in what kind of period of time? Jesus, they get to Bethlehem, Jesus is born like instantly, and then the wise men show up like the next two or three days, right? No. Years. Shepherds came first, of course. But years was probably the gap between when he was born. How do we know this? Because we know that Herod ordered the death of all boys in Bethlehem. How old and younger? Two years. So by the prophecy that the Magi saw in the stars and in their time to travel to Jerusalem and ask about where this new king was being born, they had calculated there was two years that had passed. So Jesus was potentially two years old. Now, two-year-olds are drastically different than infants, right? A two-year-old might have said some words to those Magis. He might have actually said, thank you, right? Because a lot of two-year-olds can speak and say those words. And so we have the obstacle of having these traditions that have passed down that are not actually scriptural, that if we don't get past those traditions that we've been taught that are fake news, and we begin to understand the scriptures the way they're written, then we often gloss over things that we should be far more interested in. Things that are way more interesting than the history that's been passed down to us as myth and story rather than the truth of what was recorded. And so we need to begin to realize that we have been tainted, that we're not coming with a blank slate at Scripture. That all of our years of having learned these stories, some of which are not true. By the way, if you ever go to the internet, this is going to be one of my last points. Um, later, I've got a little bit more to go. If you ever go to the internet to look up stories, don't believe anything you see, correct? Because there's all kinds of scholarly papers out there that talk about the first century culture or history, and none of it is true. A lot of it is not true. It's just fake news being spread around. So how do we study scripture? How do we study scripture? First thing is we never study in a vacuum. 
We never study in a vacuum. If you think that you can understand the scripture by just coming to it on your own with no contact with anybody else, then you are very mistaken. You have to first and foremost come to the scriptures in relationship with the Holy Spirit. This is why I said that this particular encounter practice has to come after prayer, meditation, and things like fasting where you're dedicating yourselves to desiring after God first and foremost. Because you have to develop that relationship with the Holy Spirit that you begin to know and understand his voice versus your own carnal knowledge and your own carnal desires and your own understanding. That you know his voice in, dis in distinction from the world's voice. And in these ways, as you begin to know and understand in a relationship with the Holy Spirit, you can come to the scriptures and you'll begin to understand things in the scriptures that only the Holy Spirit can teach you. But you should also be checking it with Christian history, because we have 2,000 years of men and women studying the scriptures, many of whom were much closer to the source material than us, much closer to the culture that it was written in than us. And so we should be studying those writers, and we should be trying to understand how what we're hearing from the Holy Spirit fits into all of Christian history, checking it against those who have come before us. And finally, we should be doing it in Christian community. If you just sit and you read scripture all by yourself alone in a closet, you're going to come up with some really wacky things that probably aren't healthy for you. But if you do it in community together with us, we check each other and we balance each other and our knowledges of that history and of what has come before us begin to help refine each other in our knowledge of the scriptures today. One of the most dangerous things that is going on in China in the house church movement that I heard about years ago was that because the house church movement has been driven so underground, all kinds of fake prophets and heretical beliefs are being spread at the borders of the country as they hand off Bibles to people to take to the underground house churches. And so the people, the church in Hong Kong, was super, super worried about how unorthodox the faith was becoming among that that wildfire spreading house church movement because there was no checks and balances against those who came before them and how the scriptures have been understood for thousands of years. So you need to be doing it in Christian community. Second thing, you should be using multiple translations. How many of you have one translation you use and that's it? Good, only a few of you. You should be using multiple translations. Why? This kind of overcomes the whole idea of a translator making choices from, for you, right? I typically, when I'm studying a scripture for a sermon, I'll read it in four to five to six different translations. Choosing different translations that are more light, kind of like more paraphrases and translations that are more in line with the original text and language that are really clunky and hard to read. Translations that come from a more evangelical perspective or from more mainline perspective. I try and choose things that balance so that I can see nuance that I wouldn't see if I was just reading it in one translation. So you should be stacking up Bibles and you should be reading as you study seriously the Word of God in multiple translations. The last thing is that you should utilize tools. You should utilize tools. You have all kinds of tools. Here's one tool. <laughs> There's one tool. Now that picture might make you think, oh, geez, not only are you probably untrustworthy, but you, you've passed it on to your kids. <laughs> Azariah is also sticking his tongue out there. 
I have spent my entire adult life studying the scriptures. I have two advanced degrees in the Bible. I have spent my entire career as a pastor studying the word of God. I love studying the word of God. And I don't know everything, but I'm a good starting place for you if you have questions. And what I love to have happen, what I love and eat up as a pastor is people who are taking seriously studying the scriptures and who come to me with serious questions and want to have a discussion about it. All the other things in ministry are just difficult for me. (laughs) The thing I love is having conversations with you about what the scriptures say. So use my experience, my knowledge to help you study the scriptures. And if I don't know the answer, I'll tell you I don't know the answer. And then we'll find the answer together. And it'll be something that'll teach both of us and grow both of us in our faith. But beyond that, we have whole commentary sets in our library. This is actually the commentary set we have in there. It's the New Interpreter's Bible, but we also have one from a more Reformed perspective from Westminster, and we have another one from um, a a more kind of modern uh, perspective. And so we have all these different tools in our library that you can go and use. So if you're reading scripture and you don't understand something, you can go pull the commentary from our library and make sure you bring it back, please. But you can go pull that commentary and you can use it to read and study on your own. Learn from the other scholars who have studied this. But you can go buy commentary sets. I have a couple commentary sets. So if you want to see multiple commentaries, come and talk to me. Last thing, don't go to the internet. The thing about quotes on the internet is you can never confirm their validity. Abraham Lincoln. There's so many times where I am desperately trying to find some information on the internet and so much garbage comes up as I know what I'm looking for because I read it in some scholarly paper or I read it in some academic book and I just can't remember where I got it from and I'm looking and searching on specific things to find and validate my memory on it. I come up with all kinds of junk that is completely not true. Weekly, as I prepare sermons, I come up across this. And if you don't have the knowledge to understand what is real and what is fake, you might come off believing things that completely are fake and you shouldn't be believing. So be careful and be wary about the tool of the internet when you're coming at Scripture and trying to study and understand what Scripture means. So this is the end of our encounter series, that you should be praying daily, You should be meditating regularly. You should be fasting regularly or other disciplines that help you to grow in your desire of God. And you should be studying the scriptures. And in these things, if you commit yourself, you will begin to encounter God daily and understand him more and how he relates to you, how he loves you, and what he desires for you in your life. Does it sound like a lot of work? But what good things in life aren't work? right? Is a marriage a lot of work? Yes. Is your work a lot of work? Yes. Was your education to get your job a lot of work? Was raising parents or raising kids a lot of work? (laughs) Raising parents also is a lot of work, right? (laughs) Everything in life that's good is a lot of work. So don't be intimidated on the fact that encountering God daily is a lot of work. It's just life. Get over it and do the work so that you might know God better you might be more in his image and you might love people in his name more thoroughly. Let us come, let us pray together or affirm our faith together in the Apostles' Creed. 
One of my Old Testament professors from seminary, uh, I had some family connections to him, so I had dinner at his house and he said, Chris, when I said in class that pastors have to know everything, wasn't that an encouragement and an exciting thing to you? I said, no, that was crushing. <laughs> I know I can't know everything. So don't let this sermon today discourage you from studying the scriptures. It's meant to inform you so that you might be better equipped to study the scriptures in a way that will lead to you knowing God more, encountering him more deeply, and loving him more with your life as you leave the scriptures. And we're not done with this topic. Next summer, almost the entire summer, we're going to be looking more deeply at different ways that you can practice your daily faith to encounter God. We're going to have 10 weeks on it next summer. So next year we'll get back at this topic. Also in the fall, my next pastor's class that I'm going to teach, I'm going to do on the Bible and the formation of the Bible and understanding the Bible as a text to study. So if you're more interested in this topic, you can come hear me talk about it for like six more weeks. But until then, go study the scriptures, use whatever tools, check it against Christian history, and come to know the Lord in a relationship with the Holy Spirit through his scriptures.